And if you uh, want an outline uh, for the talk tonight, it's on the back of your handout. Uh, so please use that if you want to and turn back to page 1192, 1 Timothy. We're going to look at uh, this letter for the last time at the moment, uh, just now. Um, my mum was, was always one for pithy sayings, uh, little phrases delivered like uh, universal truths, all designed to teach me how to live life to the full. You know the kind? A stitch in time? A watch pan? Oh, you and my mum obviously hung out together then. Uh, and my favourite, there's no use crying over... Oh, you've got it, you've got it. Um, that's my favourite, I think, because when I was about 13, I managed to spill a four-pint carton of uh, milk all over the kitchen floor. Uh, my mum got cross, to which I replied, not unreasonably, I thought... <laughs> having been taught the phrase uh, week in, week out for years, well, Mum, there's no use crying over spilled milk. Uh, it was shortly after that, some one to two seconds, in fact, I discovered my mum felt there were exceptions to that universal truth. <laughs> and she also made it clear that there was probably going to be grounds for me to start crying over the said spilled milk fairly soon. I tell you that um, because the Bible passage we're looking at tonight from 1 Timothy um, wants to persuade us of a universal truth. And one that really will make an impact on your whole life. And much more significant than the spilled milk nonsense. And following on from that, that truth, we'll also hear about a warning and then a freedom. A warning that there will come temptation to try and build your life ignoring this truth. It'll be a temptation to, to ignore the truth, to kind of live as if it's not really true. And a freedom that will come to your life if you will listen to God and accept what he says. So that's what we're going to get tonight. A truth, a warning, and a freedom. And they're on your, your handout if you, if you want to follow along as well. Uh, well, a truth. We've seen these past two weeks. Uh, the reason Paul's writing this letter, uh, at least in part, is so that if he's delayed, he's wanting to come and visit Timothy. Uh, to, to help him with the church, but if he's delayed so that Timothy will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. Uh, Timothy's leading uh, this church, and Paul wants him to know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's, uh, and he uses that phrase, God's household, a, a home. If you like, he wants them to know how to live at home with God and for God. I guess we could even say he's wanting them to know how to live a life that's best. He wants them to live the best kind of life. That's what's in, in Paul's mind. And the TV is full of shows about that, isn't it? You, you don't need to switch it on for very long before there's a show coming on the television uh, telling you where to live, uh, what to eat, how to dress, all in order to have the best kind of life. But I, I want you to see what's in Paul's mind when it comes to being the best. Now just have a look at verse 16 in chapter 3. Because Paul's just talked about knowing how to live. And then he says this. Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. And immediately, you kind of see what's in Paul's mind. I see, for Paul, living right, living the best equals godliness. And you might think, well, that, that sounds like the Christian answer. But it just doesn't sound very exciting. Uh, but try, if you would, to understand Paul. He's, what he's kind of saying we should be aiming for is enjoying the same kind of life that God enjoys. That's where you're to set your aim. 
and godliness. Focused on devotion to God. And almost in passing, he reminds us of the kind of God that we meet in the Bible. If you take time to meet him as he really is, the living God, instead of listening to the caricatures that regularly come up in the media, we discover a God who isn't trying to ruin life. I know this is a God who wants to draw you into sharing something of his quality of life. That's what's going on. A life so focused on God that as you get to know him, you start to share the life he enjoys. You start to live at home with the creator of the universe. You join his family. So you give Paul a moment because when he talks about getting hold of godliness, there isn't a family home anywhere better than this. See, Paul really does mean getting hold of the good life when he talks about godliness. Now that's easier said than done, isn't it? The good life. The good life is what everyone's looking for. They go about it in different ways. Fame, family, politics, money. All those kind of things. You you see it all the time. You think about them. But it, it does seem an elusive thing because you really meet people who are content, who would say they found the secret to the good life. And Paul says as much in verse 16, doesn't he? When you read that sentence again, he says, Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. It's a hard thing. It's great. And I'm sure you know that mystery here, when Paul uses the word mystery, he doesn't mean that it's mysterious. It's kind of a technical word in the Bible that means something that was a secret. But it's a secret that God's made known. And you get what Paul's saying. The secret to godliness... The secret to the good life. Well, that's a tough one, isn't it? It is great. The the secret that drives being the best. The secret you need to live your life well. And Paul says, I'm about to tell you what it is. Now, if you just read that for the first time, you should be on the edge of your seats. And then in verse 16, he starts singing. That's odd, isn't it? He sings a bit of a song, or at least writes down the words to it. At first glance, it it looks like an obscure song or or a bit of poetry. And you're just looking at it. What's this about? He he appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. Paul's just said, I'm about to give you the secret to life. And then he gives us this piece of poetry. So how does that explain the secret of life? Well, let's try and work through it. I'm, I'm not brilliant with poetry. I don't always understand it. But there, there seems to be kind of three couplets here. Uh, three sets of, of two lines that are about, if you just look through it, that are all about things that are seen and things that are unseen. And as you read it and think about it for a moment, you start to realize we're talking about a someone here, aren't we? Uh, The secret of life, and then Paul talks about a someone. And it doesn't take too much thinking or even guesswork to figure out that it's probably Jesus. In fact, it must be Jesus. Because he was how God appeared in a body. That's who Paul must be talking about. And vindicated by the Spirit, well... Well, that's kind of Bible shorthand for the the message about Jesus. See, Jesus lived and taught and claimed that he was God. Come to save people. 
And that he would die in place of sinful people so that you and I could be forgiven and restored into a right relationship with God. They're outrageously big claims for someone to make, aren't they? (laughs) To claim that they are God walking around on earth. And he's going to die to forgive you and restore you to God. That's a huge claim. And if they're true, well, it confirms lots of things about us, doesn't it? Because if Jesus is right with these claims, it, it does mean that we are guilty before God because God has shown up and told us so. And whether we feel it or not, if God shows up and tells us, it, it must be true and that our big need is to be forgiven through Jesus. See, if it's true, it's a truth that's got to reshape the whole of life, hasn't it? Now, Jesus is making the biggest claim ever. Is it true? Well, the Bible says Jesus was vindicated. He was proved to be true. He proved it when he was raised up to life, resurrected, came back from death. See, his resurrection is the final evidence that all that he said and claimed is true. You might be here thinking, oh, resurrection, that seems hard to believe. It's meant to be, isn't it? God's doing something extreme to prove it to us. If anyone could have done it, it wouldn't prove anything. The resurrection proves that Jesus, what he claimed, is true. The rest of this song, a bit of poetry, talks in poetic terms about the impact Jesus makes. That that second couplet, uh, the second two lines in it, is, is all about where he's to be made known, where you're to talk about this Jesus, and it's well, it's everywhere, isn't it? A seen and unseen. Everyone's to hear about him among all the spiritual beings and among every person on earth. And the third couplet? Well, that's kind of where he is to be calling the shots. Where he's to be received, where he's to be believed, where he's to be in charge. And again, that's everywhere, isn't it? Seen and unseen throughout the whole world. And even heaven itself, where he receives glory. I see what this is telling us, is that Jesus died and rose again. And he's in charge everywhere. Now that well-known quote, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. And Paul would go further, it's not just human existence, it's everywhere. So you ask the question again, what's the secret you need as you journey through life? And what is it you need to really get you through it? Is it good looks? Intellect? Success? Well, they'll all hit a roadblock one day, won't they? At death. But Jesus won't. Well, he's already been through it. So if you link your life with him, well, he can get you through that. See, what do you need to put in place to have security for any situation in life? Is it enough money? Well, you can lose it, can't you? We've been reminded of that again. Is it health? Well, it's a fragile thing. And we've been reminded of that in our family as our nephew George was born with a problem heart. At 12 weeks, he'd already had three heart operations. See, what's the secret to living secure in all of those situations? See what Paul says. 
And the secret is a person. See, he's the one who stands in charge in heaven and on earth and on both sides of death. So you understand what that means? So when you come to Christianity, the secret to the good life is not anything you can grab onto in this world. Because all those things will eventually slip through our fingers. Instead, you find it's someone who has come to grab onto you, who's in charge of this world. See, according to Christianity, the secret to the good life is not even religious rules you've got to keep. Instead, it's a remarkable relationship that will keep you. See, the key to the good life, to living well, to godliness, is to come to know Jesus Christ. Not just that he is Saviour and Lord, but to know him as your Saviour and your Lord. To give back to him every day what always should have belonged to him. Your life. So if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, you need to think through what you make of the resurrection. If Jesus Christ really did rise from the dead, then all that he claimed has been proved true. And that's got to mean if you want to find life, you need to get to know him. Some people put off doing that because they, they focus too much on what is seen. You think you can get through life by holding on to things that you've got in this life. But listen to me. The Bible says there will come a day when you close your eyes for the last time on this world. And after that, you will open them onto the unseen world. And you will have nothing there to hold on to unless you have a friend called Jesus Christ. He's your only hope on that day. So if you're already a Christian, then remember, now this is where true life springs from. This is where security for living comes from. And I wonder, what, why would Paul tell us all of that in a song? See, why write a bit of poetry about it? Why the flowery words and the emotive language? See, I wonder if this is not another way of saying, if you really get to know Jesus Christ, he won't just inform your mind, he'll warm your heart as well. See, if you really do come to believe in him, you won't just want to explain him with all your intellect, you'll want to sing about him with all your emotions as well. Or if you want to put it another way, For those of you who wonder if when Jesus Christ comes to take charge of your life, it will mean the end of life and enjoyment. The Bible is saying when Jesus takes charge, you will love him. It might be a struggle at times, but you'll love the way he takes charge. And he will fill your heart till you want to sing. See, those of you who really know Jesus already know that's the case. You know that's true. That's why Christians sing about him. Oh, here's the universal truth we're being told. The secret to life is knowing Jesus as Lord and Savior. He's in charge of everything. But now Paul turns uh, to a warning. 
at the start of chapter 4, and I, and I think it's something like this is warning you, don't separate life from lordship. See, actually, it's not so much Paul's warning as you, as you look at these verses. You see where it's coming from. It, it's a warning from God the Holy Spirit himself, and he, he tells us about an attack uh, that you'll probably face. Now, what's it going to be like? Well, we just have a look at uh, verse 1. He says we'll, we'll face an attack that's spiritual. Uh, that's what he says. He, he talks about things taught by deceiving spirits. Uh, things that if you're not wise to them will cause people to stop believing Jesus is the secret to life. They will abandon the faith. They'll give up trusting Jesus as Lord. It's that serious. And when you think about the devil and evil spirits, I imagine for many of us, our, our imaginations are, are too fueled by films and TV. Uh, monsters, flames, pitchforks, all stuff like that, which... It's what makes verse 2 so chilling, isn't it? See, this attack in verse 2, Paul says, it'll come in the form of teaching. It'll come through people. Now, that's where it comes from. And when he says their, their consciences have been seared, I think he means desensitized. That chap I, I used to know, Pete, he worked as a, a butcher. At the shop, butcher shop was always kept cold for the meat, and his hands got... Are kind of desensitized. You know how it gets in the cold. They get numb. They so desensitized that he didn't feel it when he passed his little finger through the bandsaw cutting the meat. It's a dangerous thing when you stop feeling, isn't it? You don't notice what's going on. And Paul says these people giving out this teaching, but standing behind them, evil spiritual forces wanting to deceive people, and they've been desensitized. Uh, people desensitize their consciences. It's like they've burned away the nerves. They've been ignoring God to the point they don't feel him anymore. And then after a while, they can't feel him anymore. And the slightly alarming thing is that he's not talking about atheists. He's talking about people who would describe themselves as religious, as spiritual Actually, they'd describe themselves as Christians. And they'd be sitting in churches like this. It's a terrible situation to be in, isn't it? To be in a church, thinking of yourself as spiritual and to be so desensitized. It's a terrible situation to be in for them and for anyone listening to them. See, they could be leaders of churches... They could be members of churches, sounding sort of spiritual, convinced they're doing the right thing, but they've become desensitized. Do you think you'd be taken in by people like that? Do you think you'd become someone like that? Nobody ever does, do they? Nobody ever thinks it would be them. And yet the Bible gives us all this warning. Uh, Becoming someone like this, sounding like you're saying yes to God, but actually saying no to the point where you just don't feel it anymore. So how do you spot this variety of false teaching? How do you spot if you're being taken in by it? Well, you did see, didn't you, what's at the heart of what they do. It's actually there in verse 3. They, they separate life from lordship. Now, there are particular issues for Timothy there in Ephesus in verse 3. He mentions a few of them. There's stuff around marriage, and I think it's probably linked in with sex. And there's certain foods, probably meat, that people aren't meant to eat anymore. And the idea is probably something like this. If, 
If you want to be spiritual, then you need to avoid certain things. Now that's what they're teaching. I hear in Ephesus it showed itself in a view that perhaps virginity was more spiritual than marriage. And linked with that was probably the idea that men were better than women. And there seems to be been also what you can only call a kind of snooty vegetarianism. It probably came through some Jewish cults mixed with a kind of Greek dualism that thought the physical wasn't really spiritual. Material things weren't really spiritual. There's a group called the Gnostics who were into this in a big way. that The visible material world was evil, they said. You want to be spiritual, go for the unseen things. The spiritual world is just unseen, go for that. I mean, you've got to eat something, but just eat vegetables. And definitely stay away from sex and marriage because they've got nothing to do with being spiritual. But we've just seen, haven't we, that Jesus is Lord of everything. In fact, he appeared in a body. A God who is spirit became material, physical. He thinks it's a good thing. He was happy to have a body. See, Christianity is a religion that says that the physical is good. The material world is a good thing. It's not something to be avoided. The the way to have the best life, a truly spiritual life, is not to avoid physical things, but to bring them under the lordship of Jesus. Now, what about you and me? Because I don't think the problem for many of us is that in an attempt to be spiritual, we're regularly thinking of all the physical things that we've got to avoid. I think our danger is probably another kind of dualism. We're not thinking certain things are not spiritual, so avoid them. We're probably thinking something like certain things are not really spiritual, so it doesn't matter what I think about them, or do with them, or how I use them. Or at the very least, we categorize how spiritual things are. So students, reading the Bible is all about being spiritual. But what I'm reading in my lectures isn't. On the other year, around Sheffield, among students, there was lots of excitement. Apparently, gold dust was appearing as people prayed. And people were getting very excited about it. You see what Paul would say? Even if that did happen, even if it did happen, Paul would say, why are you getting so excited about that? More than learning French and using it for God. Now, why would you split things into that spiritual and this isn't? Or if you think going to Sunday a.m. is about being spiritual, but going to school or work isn't. Or going to the prayer meeting is about being spiritual, but going out for coffee with some of my friends isn't. And therefore, how I assess my conduct and conversation at the prayer meeting will be vastly different to how I assess my conduct and conversation when I'm at the coffee shop. So if you think it's okay to gossip in the coffee shop, but not at the prayer meeting... Or if you're diligent at Sunday a.m. but not at school. Or if you make the effort to help with the music group but rarely make an effort to help your wife. Well then you're really saying this area of life is not really that spiritual. And you need to listen to the warning of the Holy Spirit. Because he says that kind of thinking has its origin with evil spiritual forces. And it's a subtle attack designed to draw you away from following Jesus, who is the sovereign Lord and in charge of everything. But if you want to live for the sovereign Lord, you need to be clear, Jesus is Lord of everything. Oh, here's the last thing. 
Now, living for the sovereign Lord will give you a freedom. It will give you a freedom. Live all of life as a gracious gift. Have you noticed the different way men and women talk about wedding dresses? It's probably not the thing forefront in your mind, but I was thinking about it a while back. You notice the different way they talk about it. If, you, if you've been to a wedding and you ask almost any man, what was the wedding dress like? The answer is usually white. And I know what you're thinking, men. Um, that is what wedding dresses are like, isn't it? What's wrong with that answer? Women, I would imagine, would tell us there's a lot more to see than that. They'll ask you, what kind of white was it? The first time I got asked that question, I was totally bemused. What, there's different kinds of whites? Loads of them. They'll ask you, was it, was it a dress or a skirt with a kind of fitted top? Was it strapless? Did you have a veil? What was the material like? How did it sit? There's always more goodness to see with wearing dresses, isn't there? See, when it comes to living in God's world, see what Paul says? He says the same kind of thing. There's always more goodness to see. The more you look into God's world, the more goodness you see. That, that's verses 4 and 5, isn't it? Just have a look at that. Paul says, for everything God created is good. Everything, everywhere you look. And nothing's to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving because it's consecrated by the word of God and prayer. So here's what Paul's saying. The, the Bible introduces us to the sovereign Lord. He's made everything. And you think about that for a moment. The, the blue skies you've enjoyed this past week that have given the foretaste of summer. Your friends and family. The food you like. The work you enjoy. The football you enjoyed this week. The colour of your girlfriend's eyes. Your husband's laugh. The breath you've just taken. Standing behind all of that is the sovereign Lord. And more than that, says Paul, they were all designed by him as good gifts for you. All of them. For you to receive and enjoy. God's, God's intent was to give them all to you freely. That's what they're for. But when you think about freedom, true freedom doesn't mean just doing what we want, does it, with anything we find in God's world. We know that's not the case. So imagine Paul, our vicar, was to invite you round for lunch. You, you go round to his house and you see his garden. I've seen it. It is really quite nice. And you ask him, can I go into the garden? And he says, feel free. And you think, great, so you go out and get a JCB and dig it up. And when he looks at you a little angry, you say, well, well, you said I was to feel free in your garden, or didn't you really mean that? Didn't you mean I was really free? Well, you'd be a fool, wouldn't you? Because no one in their right mind would think freedom to enjoy something meant freedom to destroy something. And nobody would think like that, would they? But sin makes us act like fools in God's world. Enjoying so-called freedom from God in his world, humanity builds concentration camps and nuclear bombs. Free from God to be selfish and greedy, to bend rules to get more money. Now listen to Paul again, verse 5. And hear what he's saying, because God gives us everything. We've not earned it, it's free. But look, verse 5. God tells us how to use everything. And he's right to do that, isn't he? That's what Paul means in verse 5 when he says, as God gives us everything, it's all consecrated by the word of God and prayer. He tells us how to do it. God tells us in the Bible how to live life. 
and keeps encouraging us to pray, asking for his help to live the way that we should. So do you see why that's freedom? It's free to enjoy life within God's security and blessing. It's freedom to enjoy all the things he's given us. Most people who are not Christians tend to think the Bible is something like a book of rules, what you need to give up to keep God happy. But this says that's not what it's like at all. It says the Bible is what contains the secret to the good life. Enjoying the true freedom God wants to give you. Now that's what the Bible you're holding is. It's the secret to the good life. Wanting to show you how to live freely, enjoying all that God gives you. Now, now you might say, hang on a minute. A minute ago you told us the secret to life was knowing Jesus. Now you're telling us the secret is the Bible. Which is it? Well, the answer is they're related, aren't they? See, in John's Gospel, Jesus says an interesting thing when he's debating with a group of religious people. He, he says to them, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. Now, these are the scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. See, his point is, God's word is not merely a set of rules to be kept but a way to be introduced to the person who will keep you. Who will set you free and to follow the one who keeps you free. See, in other words, God's word is, not, is all about getting to know and relating to Jesus Christ. Or put another way, the reason the Bible will set you free to enjoy life is not because it gives the best rules, but because through it, God can draw you ever more deeply into a relationship with Jesus Christ. The one who died to forgive you and to set you free and lives to lead you only in freedom if you trust him. Living with him as your Lord and Savior, you will love him and start to enjoy the life he gives you. Let's pray together.